This morning's scripture comes from the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, the first 12 verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. But all this I laid to with all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so the sinner and he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living knows that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share at all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion to life and in your toil in which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do with it, you do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We had our grandkids with us a week ago, not this past week, but the week before that, and we did a lot of things. One of the things we decided to do was go to Morton Park and uh, cook hot dogs and roast marshmallows, make s'mores. It's a fun thing to do with grandkids. And, uh, Daniel, our nine-year-old, was hanging around the pavilion there where the Coke machine is, and he happened to find three quarters. What would a nine-year-old do with three quarters that he happens to find by a Coke machine? Well, put the quarters in there. And I uh, pressed the button, and nothing happened. So uh, he came and reported his misfortune to me, and so I went over and tried to see if I could get the quarters back, but to no avail. And I uh, saw this as a teaching opportunity. And you know, sometimes that's the way life is. Things don't happen the way that you expect. There are disappointments in life. I'm not sure that message really soaked in. Um, I don't know if it's really soaked in with me uh, because I'm of the mindset that life is supposed to work all the time, you know, like a Coke machine that's not out of order. It's supposed to be that you put your currency in, you press the button, 
and you get what you expect. But that's not the way life is. But isn't that the way we think life should be? You know, if you're a good person, and you love God, you do your best, then life should go well for you. And if you're a bad person and you hate God and you're undisciplined and lazy, then your life shouldn't go well. The better person you are, the better your life should go. It's pretty much like the way it is with the Coke machine. Put your money in the machine. If you put the right amount of money in the machine, then the machine whirs and the Coke drops and you walk away with what you paid for. This is how Coke machines are supposed to work. It's how life is supposed to work. And for most people, in this country anyway, that's how we think God is supposed to work. Back in 2005, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith and his fellow researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion conducted a research project involving some 3,000 teenagers. And from that research, there was a list of commonly held beliefs about God and spirituality. All of these beliefs uh, e emerged from doing this, this research project. And um, they call this moralistic therapeutic deism. So what is that? Uh, basically, it happens to be, be a preferred religion of Western culture, which usually and tragically goes by the name of Christianity. So from a um, postmodernistic uh, worldview, uh, this is what a, a lot of people in this country anyway believe Christianity is. And here, here are five basic beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world, watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when you need God to resolve a problem for you. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Well, in labeling this uh, set of, that's not what I wanted. There's supposed to be a blank here, but I guess I messed that up. So just meditate on this thought. I'll get to it later on. And uh, reflecting upon his research, Smith had this to say, and I quote, uh, if I pray hard enough, then God will bless me with good things. That's what I've called the candy dispenser God, he says. I put in the prayer, he gives me the blessing, all in accordance to my quotient of faithfulness. You know, it sounds a lot like the stuff you see on Facebook uh, you know, where it says, you know, share this meme and you'll be blessed. Type amen and you'll be blessed. You wonder how many likes on Facebook Jesus has to get before he's going to be authorized by his people to step in and intervene and 
heal somebody of some disease or deliver somebody from, from some malady. So well, whatever you call it, you know, uh, meme sharing, blessing collecting, or candy dispenser God, or a Coke machine God, or more or less therapeutic deism, it's all the same. And it's what most young people in America believe about God and spirituality. So it works like this. If you spend the right currency and press the right button, your request will be granted. So God is supposed to work like a Coke machine. Life is supposed to work like a Coke machine. You put your currency in, you press the button, you get what you ask for. That's what people believe today. And by the way, that's what people believed thousands of years ago too when Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And here is the statement here I want to have you meditate on just for a moment. Life does not work out the way you planned or the way you expect. But this is essentially what the preacher is saying in Ecclesiastes 9. So here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, first of all, I want us to look at the problem so that we can be sure that we are seeing life as it is rather than life as we wish it was. And second, I want us to see how we live in the light of the brevity and the unpredictability of life. So let's go first to the problem. In chapters 7 and 8, the preacher's been examining the seeming random nature of life. He's been struggling with the question of why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people. How can a good and powerful God allow these things to happen? And then he comes to chapter 9 and in verse 1 he says this, I thought about these things. By the way, this is from one of those new translations. Uh, I, th I think this one is called the, the, the easy to read version, but here we go. I thought about these things. Then I understood that God has power over everyone, even those of us who are wise and live right. Anything can happen to any of us. And so we never know if life will be good or bad. He says he's been thinking about this and he's come to two conclusions. One is our lives are in God's hands. God is sovereign. Therefore, life is not random. God is in control of what happens, even if we can't figure it out. So far, so good, right? Are you with me? But he also comes to a second conclusion. That is, nobody can tell whether God loves us or is angry with us. You know, if you just looked at the events of life, you would really have no idea whether God is for you or against you because life can be very harsh. St. Teresa of Avila, who lived in the 16th century, supposedly said, I quote, God, if that's how you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few. And that's not too far off of what the preacher is saying. You know, for good measure, he deals with two realities that make it really difficult to know whether God is for us or against us. And the first reality is death. So let me summarize what the preacher is saying in verses 2 through 6. We all die. The dead have nothing. In verses 2 and 3, he says the same event happens to everyone. Death happens to both the righteous 
and the wicked. Everybody dies. In verses 4 through 6, he says it's much better to be alive than dead. Brilliant guy. If you're alive, you have hope. He says this in, in verse 4. As long as we are alive, we still have hope. Just as a live dog is better off than a dead lion. You know, they didn't think too much of dogs in those days. In these days, you know, dogs are, are right up there with, with angels. You know, if, uh, if you have friends who are, who are dog persons, uh, they all believe uh, all dogs go to heaven. You know, it's, it's just pretty much a, a standard a belief among you know, dog lovers. Um, but in, in those days, uh, dogs were more like, I mean, we, we think, We think of rats the way they thought of dogs. You know, rats are scavengers. Uh, they're, they're evil. They're wicked. They're fearsome. They cause disease. Uh, we, we, we don't like rats. And so that's kind of how the people thought of dogs back in those days. But, uh, but the preacher here is saying, look, you know, e even a, a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, in, in those days, and in our days too, we think of uh, the, the lion as, as a noble, uh, courageous creature, majestic. Um, but when a lion is dead, um, he's not so majestic anymore. And that's what the, the preacher here is, is saying. You know, when, when you're alive, that's one thing, but when you're dead, that's another. Then he goes on to verse 5, and he says, We know that we will die. But the dead don't know a thing. Nothing good will happen to them. They're gone and forgotten. So he says concerning the dead, there is no memory of them. There's no more reward, no remembrance of their lives. You, you, you think about this. In a hundred years from now, when we're all gone, uh, nobody will even know our names. Um, that's kind of what the preacher is, is saying. Are you getting the sense that the book of Ecclesiastes is... Filled with despair? It, it's okay if you say yes or nod your head or kind of snicker a little bit uh, because that's pretty much the impression I'm getting here. Uh, but the preacher or Solomon, we, we believe that he, he wrote the book, the, I'm referring to him as the preacher because that's how he refers to himself. He's really not presenting life as he sees it as though it's meaningless or uh, that you should have a, a, a look of, an outlook of despair upon life. What he's doing is he's comparing two ways of looking at life. You know, there's life under the sun, which means the life apart from God. And if life apart from God means you came from nothing and to nothing you will go. And after you die, you cease to exist. And life does not continue for you in any way, shape, or form. Uh, then that can only lead to meaninglessness. But there is another way to live, and that way is being contrasted with the, the, the way of uh, life under the sun, that is life under heaven, life above the sun. And so we're going to be uh, coming to that, but in, in the meantime, uh, we're, we're, we're looking at life the way that someone would look at life if there is no hope, if there is no meaning in life. So uh, let's think of it kind of like this. You know, as, as good as life is, 
life does come to an end. And it's something that we all have to deal with. But uh, nobody wants to think about the end because it's depressing, so we uh, avoid the subject. But you really can't think about life very seriously unless you also think about death. So uh, look at it this way. Uh, suppose you jump out of, the, out of an airplane without a parachute. Now, on your fall down, you're, you can have all kinds of fun. You can imagine yourself actually flying as you sail through the air. Um, and, and that's great fun, uh, but the end, uh, not so much. So, life under the sun, I mean, that's the perspective of life under the sun. You can have a great time, but when you get to the end of your life, uh, there, there's nothing there. One day a medical student came to his pastor. Uh, he had to talk about something. They had, had just had a lab uh, where, they, where he did his first autopsy. And in doing the autopsy, uh, you know, cutting through the, the tissues, through the flesh to get to the tissues to expose uh, the, the internal organs, uh, he, he was kind of shaken by that because he, he wondered, is, is this what we all come to? Is there anything be, beyond this? If there's not, then what's the point of anything? And that's really the question that the preacher is posing to his readers. What's the point of, of anything if there is no God? So when you look at life, you have to realize that there are some things that are stacked against us, you know, not the least of which is death, but there's more. It's not just death that's stacked against us. In verses 11 and 12, he says that life is not only brief, but it's also unpredictable. I also saw other things in this life that were not fair. The fastest runner does not always win. The strongest soldier does not always win the battle. Wise people don't always get the food. Smart people don't always get the wealth. Educated people don't always get the praise they deserve. When the time comes, bad things can happen to anyone. Then in verse 12, you never know when hard times will come. Like fish in a net or birds in a snare, people are often trapped by some disaster that suddenly falls on them. Well, I don't know a passage in Scripture that does a better job of confronting the lies that we tell ourselves about the way that life is supposed to work than this passage. You know, if you're at a race, which runner do you think is going to win? Well, the fastest one, of course. But it doesn't always happen that way. In 2008, the Olympics in Beijing, there was an American runner named Lola Jones who was expected to win the gold medal. She was recognized as the fastest woman on earth. But as she was making her way around the track, she tripped on the ninth hurdle and came in not first, but seventh. The race is not always to the fastest. Life is unpredictable. Which army wins in battle? Well, the bigger and the better one, right? Well, one day there was a battle. There was a representative from the Philistines, Goliath by name, and there was a representative of the Israelites, David by name. Goliath was huge, nine and a half feet tall, had impressive armor, fearsome weapons, and everyone trembled when they saw him. 
But David, armed only with a sling and five smooth stones, took him out. Life is unpredictable. Who's going to succeed in life? You know, just about every high school and college yearbook, I don't know if they still do it or not, but they used to, to have this little section there, you know, most likely to do this or that in life. And at the top of the list is who is most likely to succeed. Did you have that in your college yearbook? Um, it seems like in every class there are some, you know, who are the, who are the, 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 the brightest, um, the most gifted, and uh, it always seems that they are destined to do very well in life. But that's not always the case. You know, last week there was the NBA draft, and um, you look through the list of, of um, you know, players who were drafted there, and you think, well, you know, the top five or the top ten are, are, are destined to, to start them. But history tells us that's not the case. You know, Michael Jordan was drafted number three, so you probably never heard of Detlef Schrempf or Sam Bowie who were drafted ahead of them. Those guys busted. Uh, they were expected to do better than Michael Jordan. So, you know, the, the time uh, will come where uh, history will show that there were some guys who were drafted very high in last week's draft who will be busts, and there will be some guys who were drafted low, people you never heard of, uh, who will go on to have superstardom. Uh, I suppose you probably heard this old story about this wealthy philanthropist who came to visit his alma mater. And he's talking to his dean, and to the dean he says, you know, you, you need to take care of your graduates, take care of your alumni, take care of the A students, because these are the guys and girls who are going to come back and be your professors. And you need to take good care of the B students, too, because they are the most likely ones to make regular contributions to your school. And by all means, take very good care of your C students, because they are the ones who are most likely to come in with huge bucks and build a new library in their own name on your campus. That's because they're the most entrepreneurial mavericks who will go on to start successful companies. Point is, life is unpredictable. That's also the problem. So the teacher is helping us grasp the fact that life does not always work the way that we expect it to happen. The Coke machine of life sometimes is out of order. Good things don't always happen to good people Bad things don't always happen to bad people. Life is brief and unpredictable. Now, looking at the events of life, it's hard to know whether God is for us or against us. So in a minute, we're going to see what the teacher says in light of this reality. But for now, what do we do with the fact that life is brief and uncertain? Do we just you know, throw up our hands in despair? How are we supposed to live knowing that this is what life is like. Now, we're going to do that, but before we do, I want to make a quick pastoral application here. I want to encourage you to really get this so that you're not surprised when the tough time comes, that you don't go looking for easy answers when there aren't any. You know, there are whole groups of people who promise that if you are a good Christian, 
that you will experience good health, financial prosperity, and happiness. It's like you'll have this bubble around you that insulates you from anything bad happening. Your marriage will flourish, your kids will get all A's and they'll go on to get married and have successful jobs. You won't get sick, you will live long, and you will prosper. It's like a Christian version of the Napoleon Dynamite campaign promise. Live right and your dreams will come true. And that's what the Coke, world, Coke machine worldview teaches. It's what moralistic therapeutic deism teaches. You know, we don't need instructions how, on how to live in a make-believe world. We need instruction on how to live in the real world. I've been around long enough to know that some really horrible things happen to some really good people for no apparent reason. We need to stop being surprised by suffering. We need a faith that can withstand the brief and uncertain nature of life. Otherwise, we will find ourselves relying upon a faith that's not going to be of any use to us when the hard times come. In the real world, some hard times come. Good things happen too, but there's no escaping suffering. There's no escaping pain. There's no escaping the hard times. We wish that life was like a Coke machine that always works. Put your currency in and you get what you want. Always. Every time. But we don't live in that kind of world. In a world of our own making. We live in the real world. And in the real world, you don't always get what you expect or what you want. Coke machines don't always work. Neither literal nor figurative Coke machines always work like we expect them to. That's the problem. So, with that in mind, how do we live in light of this brief and unpredictable life? Well, verses 7 through 10 provide some clues. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You know, this seems to contradict everything he's been saying about the frustration of life under the sun. The preacher seems to be saying this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. He's saying eat, drink, and be merry to the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the past few hundred years, um, was a, he was kind of an enigmatic man in, in, in a number of ways. And one of the things that he used to uh, enjoy uh, was a cigar. And one day, another um, preacher came up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, it's, it's hard for me to believe that a man of your stature, a, a godly man such as you... Um, I mean, in light of all of that, 
how can you smoke a cigar? And Spurgeon just stood there staring at him for a moment, took a puff on his cigar and exhaled the smoke, and he said, to the glory of God. <laughs> well, this is not an apology. By that I mean a defense for cigar smoking. I just thought it was fun. You know, God made us to need food and refreshment, but he also made it enjoyable, didn't he? All food doesn't have to taste like grass. Now, let me illustrate what I'm trying to say in terms I think we can kind of understand. Um, so let's think of life. You know, life has, we, we've already seen it, it has uh, a, a downside, there, there is pain in life, there's suffering in life, there are disappointments in life, and, and we are all well acquainted with those. But in this life, there are also some, some good things. It's not all bad things. So sometimes, uh, usually during this season of the year, we, we take a vacation. Uh, last year, uh, we, we took a vacation to uh, Sleeping Bear Dunes on Lake Michigan. And uh, it was great. Uh, I thought about showing pictures. I think I showed those last year, so I don't want to bore you with my pictures again. But uh, weather was perfect, uh, majestic sunsets. Uh, it's just hard to describe the various shades of blue and black. And uh, on, on, on the horizon, uh, you just stand there and watch it. Um, you can see day and night at the same time. And stars just look like you can reach out and, and grab hold of them. It was sensational. And uh, to go along with that, uh, you know, we had this house, you know, right there on the lake. We could see the water all the time and the sky uh, all the time. And we found this nice little restaurant. It's a cherry-themed restaurant. And I love cherries, by the way. And so um, everything on the menu uh, was made of cherries, even the grilled cheese sandwich, uh, even the hamburgers. Uh, that was her specialty. You know, they crushed cherries into uh, to hamburgers and even to the steak. And, uh, you know, those are all things I love. Uh, what's it going to be like, though, when you have, you know, hamburgers, which I love, and cherries that I love, and put them both together? It might not be something I love. But I did, you know, it was all really good. And then they had this, you know, fountain you could go to. And you could get a salt drink, I think, but the most uh, alluring things on the, the drink fountain, uh, you could get cherry soda, you could get cherry cider, you could get cherry this, cherry that. And so I sampled all of it. <laughs> it was good. Um, you know, God put some good things in this world for us to, to eat and to enjoy. And uh, the teacher or the preacher here in Ecclesiastes you know, mentions some things that we should enjoy. He says, you know, go enjoy your bread. Go enjoy your wine. I'm not a wine drinker, but there is, uh, un unless you consider cheer wine to be wine, um, the part of the country where I come from, uh, there is a soft drink uh, called cheer wine. It's more of a, a, a cherry cola, and uh, it's, it's, it's very popular in that part of the country. Although I was at Rural King the other day, and I saw a bottle of cheer wine on the shelf, and I thought about buying it, but they wanted a dollar for that 10-ounce bottle. So, you know, I, I, I passed on that. Um, 
Now, something else I like to do when I go home besides get a bottle of cheer wine is uh, stop by the local Krispy Kreme store. And if they have that hot donut sign on, you know, it's really hard to resist going in there and having a donut or two. Uh, I'm trying to resist those things, but after reading Ecclesiastes 9 and thinking, you know, Solomon did say, go and eat your bread and drink your wine. So could that mean donut and cheer wine? You know, just asking, just, just saying. Uh, enjoy your food, he says. God has provided a rich variety of fruits and vegetables and grains and meats and spices, all for our enjoyment. Am I making you hungry? Uh, Psalm 104, verse 15 says this, uh, wine, you know, God has given wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. In uh, verse 7 of chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, uh, he says, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. So, you know what he's saying? There are some things in life that are hard. Yeah, we get that. It's not hard to convince us of that. But there are some good things too. There, there is a, a, a mixture of blessings and curses in, in the world that, that we deal with. And the, the curses, you know, we will experience those things. We can't escape it. But don't try to escape the good things either. Enjoy them when they come. You know, I like to, uh, would like to go on, um, but I want this to be enjoyable for you. So I'm going to, I'm going to cut short the, the part here about, um, you know, the wearing of white, which is, you know, opposite of wearing the uh, black, which is a sign of mourning. You know, wearing white, it just shows joy of life. And uh, so what, what Solomon is, is, is saying here is, you know, you don't have to go through your life feeling glum and despondent all the time. Uh, wear your white garments, wear your favorite clothes, go get some cute shoes, fit your hair if you have any. Uh, you know, that's what he's saying in, in, in these verses, which we're not going to take time to cover, but I just summarized them for you there. Uh, what I want to do now in closing is answer this question. You know, how do we live in light of the fact that we had this problem? The problem is life doesn't always go the way we want it to go. How do we live in light of that? Well, um, Kara told me a story this past week of a missionary she had read about uh, whose name is uh, Darlene Diebler Rose. In uh, 1938, she and her husband uh, went to um, Indonesia to be missionaries. A few years later, of course, uh, World War II breaks out. In 1942, the Japanese round up all the foreigners uh, th these were known as the Dutch West Indies, that, that whole area, so there were a lot of Dutch people there. Uh, so there were Dutch-speaking people, there were English-speaking people, uh, there were people who, who spoke of whatever the Indonesian language is. Um, and uh, you know, Darlene knew all of those languages. She was fluent in those, which made her such a, a, a great missionary. So anyway, the Japanese come and they round up all the, uh, the, the expatriates, the foreigners who, who were living there. And they inter them in POW camps, men in one camp, women in the other camp. 
So little did Darlene know that as her husband uh, bid her goodbye, reminding her that God will never leave us nor forsake us. So last time she would ever see him, uh, he would die in the prisoner of war camp. But when Darlene got to the uh, camp where she was assigned, um, they had several different barracks. There were 600 women who were interred in that camp. And uh, Darlene was made uh, to be uh, in, in charge of her particular barracks, mostly because she was fluent in uh, all of the languages that the, 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 speak, the people spoke. And so what she did was, you know, there were a lot of jobs that had to be done that were assigned, and so the, the leader of, of each barracks you know, had to make the, the work assignments to the people who were living there. And so uh, Darlene made sure that everyone knew all of the jobs, and she rotated the jobs so that no one would get stuck in that dull, boring, mundane routine of life. Echoes of Ecclesiastes, uh, life can be dull and mundane. And so uh, Darlene wanted to make sure that people didn't get um, squashed by that. The commander of the camp uh, was a man by the name of Yamaji. That was his last name. He was a cruel man. He was known to uh, beat prisoners to death, trying to extract intelligence from them. Uh, but he was cruel in another way. Uh, the, the Japanese had uh, a lot of pigs there uh, because they like pork. Uh, but pigs, as you know, draw flies. And so uh, Yamaji uh, imposed a quota of 100 flies per day to each woman who was there. So they had to, uh, to catch or kill 100 flies and present them to him at the end of each day. So you do some quick math. You've got 600 women. They have to kill 100 flies a day. That's 60,000 flies a day. Eventually, Yamaji got bored of counting all those flies, and so he dropped uh, that quota and uh, just resorted to the, the regular routine in POW camps. Uh, Darlene had been accused of being an American spy, and so they were looking to extract a confession from her, but there was no way that she could confess to something that she was not guilty of. Um, nonetheless, she feared that she would be executed for being a spy, uh, nonetheless. Well, a year goes by. In the meantime, Darlene learns of the death of her husband, Russell. She is summoned to the quarters of Yamaji. And Yamaji confirms to her that the report of her husband's death is true. And then he says this, this is war. One day the war will be over and you can go back to America and remarry and forget these awful days. And he went on to say a few other things and among them he was saying, Please don't ever drop that wonderful smile of yours. And at that, uh, Darlene, perhaps sensing she had nothing to lose, asked for permission to speak. And Iomaji gave his permission, and Darlene proceeded to share the gospel with him. And this is part of what she said. It's excerpted from her book, which I looked up online. 
And she said, Jesus died for you, Mr. Yamaji. And he puts love in our hearts, even for those who are our enemies. That's why I don't hate you, Mr. Yamaji. Perhaps God brought me to this place and this time to tell you that, that he loves you. Well, Darlene's witness, her presentation, it was more lengthy than what I said. I just gave you some of the highlights that um, Mr. Yamaji began to well up with tears and went into a back room. Now, protocol was that prisoner could not leave the presence of an officer, especially commander of the camp, uh, unless she or he had been dismissed. But Yamaji never came back from the room, so Darlene just quietly walked back to her quarters. Uh, she was in solitary confinement. And you can imagine the dullness, the mundaneness, the boringness of being locked up in a prison cell all by yourself with nothing to do. But as she looked out the transom above the door, she could at least look out and see something. And so any kind of movement at all would be that, that would be entertaining to her. And, and so uh, there was a, a sentry who would you know, walk this way, uh, down one side, click his heels and turn and walk the other way. And she noticed that there was a woman out there dressed in a native sarong who uh, would take about a half a step each time the sentry uh, got to the end of uh, his pathway and uh, then when he got to the other end and would click his heels and turn, she would take another half step. And Darlene was fascinated by this. It, it was drama. Uh, so she figured the, the woman was trying to make her way to the edge of the jungle, maybe to make contact with someone. And, and, and sure enough, after uh, all of this time of the sentry walking back and forth and the woman on the edge of the jungle there taking a half step each time uh, so as not to be noticed, uh, someone in the jungle put a bunch of bananas into that woman's hand and she put them inside her sarong and then casually walked back uh, to her barracks so that she would not be suspected of anything. And that was thrilling and entertaining and spirit lifting for uh, Darlene in a lot of ways, but it also created something in her that was just really hard to deal with she suddenly craved a banana. How would she be able to get a banana? Who would bring her a banana? Well, certainly not the guards who had been used to beating her and torturing her. You know, certainly not the commander of the camp, uh, the one who made life miserable for everyone. Couldn't be one of the prisoners, you know, that would result in immediate death. So she decided she would ask God for a banana. And as she prayed, uh, she recounted later on looking back, she prayed sort of like this, uh, God, I know this will be extremely hard for you. In fact, she went on to, to describe that God being able to provide her just one banana uh, that it would be more likely that the moon will fall out of the sky 
than that God would provide a banana for her. Um, that's kind of the extent of her faith. Well, time went by, and then one day, the camp commander, Yamaji, appeared at her door and noticed that she looked sick. She acknowledged that she was. And is there a message? I can get to your friends in the other barracks. They were forbidden from, well, she was forbidden from any contact. She said, yes, tell them I'm doing okay and the Lord is with me. They will understand what I mean and I hope you do too. So with that, he turned and walked out. And next thing she knows, uh, there is a guard who has come to her door. She thinks perhaps that he has come to lead her to execution because she had been under condemnation um, as being an American spy. But that's not what happened. What happened was the guard opened the door, walked in, and took bananas. And said, with a big swoop, laid them at her feet. These are yours, a gift from Mr. Yamaji, the camp commander. Well, in that moment, I want us to be able to put some pieces together here. You know, we asked the question, how do we live in light of the fact that life doesn't always go the way that we want it to go? It certainly doesn't go the way we expect it to go. We put our currency in the machine and we expect to get the Coke. It doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you put the currency in and instead of getting something good, you get something that's not good. So how do you live with that reality? Well, I think Darlene Rose's life wonderfully illustrates what the preacher is saying to us in Ecclesiastes 9. Your life can be hard. It can be painful. It can be incredibly boring. But you can still enjoy the relatively simple yet good things that God gives you. And as you do, you can trust him to bring meaning to your life in ways that you never planned nor expected. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we do live in a world that that shows the effects of sin that we have brought into the world, that our representative, uh, Adam and Eve, brought into the world and we have proliferated that. It's hard for us to, to live with the reality um, that sin does result in pain and suffering. We like to, to think that it shouldn't have an effect, that we should be able to, uh, to live in a, a perfect world uh, with everything working out perfectly. It doesn't always do that, but 
you didn't leave us to our own devices. And you didn't leave us to have to wallow in our sins forever. You came, you invaded the world, you came as one of us, were born into, into the world as we are, as, as, a, as an infant. You lived a perfect life, a life we should have lived, died a death that we should have died. And through your sacrifice, you have provided not so much a means of escape as what we seek, but you provide redemption. This is something we hope for in the world to come. But in the meantime, you have given us redeemed people the opportunity to live a meaningful life, a life where all of the good things and the bad things add up to bring about something far more wonderful than we could ever have imagined. We thank you, Lord, that you are a sovereign God and that things that happen in this world are not the result of blind, random chance. They are all orchestrated by you so we can trust you. And not only that, we can find the real truth of what you said, John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Thank you for this promise and this hope which we have in him. Through Christ we pray, amen.